Now look, me talking about what happened back then, that ain't gonna do you any good now. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I mean when I'm talking about time and death and futility. Now, there are broader ideas at work, mainly what is owed between us as a society for our mutual illusions. Our 14 straight hours of staring at DBs, these are the things you think of. You ever done that? You look in their eyes, even in a picture. Doesn't matter if they're dead or alive, you can still read them. And you know what you see? They welcomed it. Hmm. Not at first, but right there in the last instant. It's an unmistakable relief. See, because they were afraid. And now they saw for the very first time how easy it was to just let go. And they saw in that last nanosecond, they saw what they were. That you, yourself, this whole big drama, it was never anything but a jerry rig of presumption and dumb will. And you could just let go. Finally know that you didn't have to hold on so tight. To realize that all your life, not all your love, all your hate, all your memory, all your pain, it was all the same thing. It was all the same dream, a dream that you had inside a locked room. A dream about being a person. Again, the one I'm thinking of off the top of my head is the is the assassination that occurred in New York. Oh, uh, Nicholas uh, Deke, the banker. Nicholas Deke, yes. Mm-hmm. But that's almost like uh, the circum. I mean, we know who we know who killed him. We know those circumstances, and really, the episode was about the the assassin and and then the mysterious circumstances of what brought her to that point and 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 caused her to kill this guy. 
Um, however, in this episode, I guess, when we discuss the the death of Joseph Daniel Danny Casalero, it's an interesting choice in part because unlike Nicholas Deke, you know, who had connections and had a role in these wider events, Danny Casalero was just a guy at this, you know, at the point really of his death. Um, you know, he he had previously been and he had aspirations to be a journalist. Um, you know, he had recently been driven out essentially of the publication that he had co-founded and brought into prominence. He was hunting around for a good enough story that which he could cut together into a book and a screenplay. Um, yes, he's a reporter, but at the same time, he's, he's not affiliated with any organization. And yet the death of this guy is, to an extent, all you can find if you just do a search for Inslaw. A big part of the reason why that is, is because Danny's death, it's, a, it's attained this status, I suppose, in, in the uh, conspiracy research realm, where people read about Inslaw, Promise, and Danny, and then they, they stake out their position. Was it murder or was it suicide? Bound within those two positions is an implication that if you think it was a suicide, then by extension, uh, you don't think that the networks and the corruption and the conspiracies that he was looking into are real or that they existed. If Danny's death was a murder, that validates everything that he was investigating and, and looking into. Now, that's a, kind of an unfair generalization of the two camps, you know. But I think that as we go along in this episode, we're going to try and stake out a, a more nuanced third camp, you know, dare I say. And what you'll find is that the deeper you get into this, a more interesting story starts to emerge. And it, it kind of goes beyond questions of murder and suicide, you know. And it, it speaks to something... I guess that we've been hinting at all through this uh, series and we've kind of been influenced by, which is uh, heavily meta crap. I suppose you could, <laughs> you could describe it. It's like Danny's death and how it's read is a sort of commentary on this, this world of uh, parapolitical research and, and so on and so forth. If I tie it back to my own involvement in this story, you know, I go back to episode one and I believe the, the, the term I used was uh, suicided, you know, for Danny Casalero. So in a way, I've almost staked that out. But I guess if I if I can, you know, apologize for myself and say, hey, it's like, well, geez, if I have to walk that back, I'm fine. I really have whether Danny was murdered or whether he died as a suicide. That doesn't actually that doesn't actually change anything in the story. And and again, you go back to episode one. It doesn't change anything in the stuff that I then said for the rest of the episode. It doesn't change a drop. This is something that I'm very curious to see what the reaction is going, going to be uh, to, because I'm not saying we're going to do this, but suppose we conclude tonight that Danny killed himself and that the official story is true. That doesn't change anything about what he was looking into 
BCCI still happened, Iran-Contra still happened, the uh, Mujahideen and the heroin financing and what would become Operation 9-11, that still happened. All of these different crimes and all these different spooky, creepy, corrupt characters still existed. Danny's death and whether it was a murder or a suicide has no bearing on the existence of these criminal networks. I could understand from a, a justice point of view, you want justice for Danny and for his family, fine. But I think a lot of people go beyond that and, and they really need him to have been murdered because that, you know, validates all these horrendous other much bigger crimes, frankly, in a way that simply knowing about those crimes doesn't, does that make sense? Yes, I think it does. Again, you have really there, you have the two camps, suicide or murder. They are seemingly exist in different universes, but actually they're in the same. They are both using Danny's death to fit almost, I would say, a, a predefined endpoint. And think there's much, much more similarity between the people that say Danny was murdered. Therefore, Michael Reconosuto was telling the truth when he talked about Area 51. Yeah. And then you have the, the again, the opposite camp who are saying Danny was a suicide. That means the research he did about the Golden Triangle was all wrong. You know, uh, the Vietnam War could have been won if not for Jane Fonda. That's some actual horseshoe theory right there, baby. Because the most um, diehard and committed of the believers in the, the murder theory and the most diehard and committed debunkers. Both of them approached Danny's death not so much as, you know, this journalist who was investigating some major corruption died in mysterious circumstances and we have to get justice or clarity or the truth, you know, for the sake of his family, for the sake of democracy, right? No, no. The hardcore believers that Danny was killed as part of some elaborate plot by the octopus cabal and the hardcore, you know, skeptics, the debunkers, deep down inside, in places they don't want to talk about at dinner parties, both of them use the death of this man to validate their beliefs about the world and also as a Rorschach test to see who's good and who's bad, you know, in the, the world out there, man. So on the subject of, of things that will actually, that, that will not just will happen in the future, but have happened in the past, do you want to get to the nitty gritty of, of his death and, uh, and the time and the, and the events leading up to that? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think we should do that. And just um, a heads up as well for listeners, just a content warning. I'm not normally one for doing that, but, you know, content warning, trigger warning. There will be discussion of, quite graphic discussion of suicide as we go along tonight. We know the broad story because we, we outlined it at the beginning of episode one of this series. Danny Casalaro traveled to Martinsburg, West Virginia to wrap up his project to tie everything together and blow the lid off his octopus investigation. On August 10th, a maid discovered him dead in the bathtub, his wrist slashed. This coming after Danny had warned his brother and some friends that if anything happened to him while he was in West Virginia, 
they weren't to believe the official story from the cops or whoever. What is Danny's mindset like as he is setting off on this trip? We have the the testimony of his uh, neighbor slash housekeeper, and she talks about this. Uh, and the the way that she describes his character at that on that day is that he is um, ebullient. He's happy. He is going. He is going to m- go to this meeting and find the thing that he was looking for. The head of the octopus, as he put it. Yes. Um, as you know, he. I think he, I forget who he said that to, but essentially, he is talking to his family member, friends, and family members, people in his circle, and he is uh, talking about this upcoming trip. And about how this is going to wrap up his book. And even if you go back a little bit before then, um, like he had made plans for a, I guess like a, a, a whole roast pig luau. Like once he got this, he got this stuff done in West Virginia, he was going to be able to get his book deal signed. And the first thing that he was going to do was invite all of his like friends and neighbors and family and he was going to cook a pig in the ground and have a big old party. We actually have in the files that have been FOIA'd, um, it's a three and a half page list of all the people he's going to invite. So he's already laid out the celebration banquet. However, though, despite how excited and happy Danny is, threaded through all of that are a lot of, I would say, darker undertones you have this issue of his finances we we went into that at length last uh last time out chapter four and there's also an issue that he may be developing ms this seems to be something else that was playing on his mind and darkening his mood particularly because there is some indication that if he thought he had MS, he suspected that it was because he'd been zapped with some kind of bioweapon because of what he was investigating pertaining, you know, to the Wackenhut Cabazon joint venture. So in the in some of the Justice Department reports, so again, that's that's a little star that you should put next to that. Yep. Yep. There is a a segment in those reports, and it's not long, but it does talk about this multiple sclerosis and it talks about how Danny had experienced, I guess, physical decline. Like I, I think the, 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 the story that is coming to top of my head is that can Danny is, 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 is healthy and fit and he has gone out to play tennis um, and he can essentially barely swing the racket around. Listeners put a pin in that about how Danny could barely heft a tennis racket. Sorry, Ben, go on. Supposedly, Danny talked to a nurse about some of the signs and symptoms of multiple sclerosis. So maybe he had pinned it down, but that seems like a, an, an unusually astute prediction. During the autopsy, your brain is removed from your, your skull, and then the brain is inspected uh, very minutely. And that, act, and that occurred during the autopsy. But according to the, the, the reports of the physician who inspected his brain, um, his brain showed the signs of having multiple sclerosis. So we have that. We also have the warnings and the threats. 
And this relationship that he developed with Robert Booth Nichols had begun to seriously uh, deteriorate by July 1991, at least in the, the description of uh, Bill Hamilton and also John Connolly, the, uh, the writer for Spy magazine. Booth Nichols had begun to scare him, basically, and, and Danny was starting to regret getting too close to this guy. We mentioned as well that, you know, he's making odd comments to friends and family. You know, we, we talked about how he said to his girlfriend, Wendy, uh, apropos of nothing, uh, will you kiss me when I'm dead one night when they were on a, a date night? And yeah, this this thing about the mountain bills, the debts that he's incurring, uh, the living expenses, just the general cost of the octopus project at this point. He is trying to to complete these creative works so that he can way strike it big um you know or at least you know i guess get him by you know pay his mortgage do things like that um but in looking more into i guess his finances because this is an important point because something that that is a heavy undercurrent in all of the danny committed suicide arguments is that he was going to go broke. He killed himself uh, so his family could get the life insurance because some, but not all, of his life insurance policies would pay on suicide. But in looking into it, it's was Danny really as destitute as I suppose you might think someone who commits suicide because their finances are ruined would actually be? Um, at this point, he had received an extension from the mortgage company. So the balloon payment on the mortgage still wasn't due for another 30 days at the time of his death. Say Danny returns from West Virginia with nothing. You know, um, He isn't able to wrap the book up. That doesn't mean that everything is over. He still has other options. Um, and one of those other options, as I've, I've read elsewhere, is... Danny had either attached to his house or perhaps elsewhere um, property that he at one point was going to sell for $800,000. Um, that deal ended up falling through due to uh, zoning problems. But that still means that there's an asset there. So maybe he gets back, he doesn't have a book, and he does a fire sale. You know, He sells the property for $400,000. Or $300,000. Sells the horses as well, maybe? Yeah, exactly. There is still, there's still a way out other than, wow, I got I to gotta, I gotta open my veins so that my family gets a $300,000 life insurance payoff. Yeah. And I mean, I know we can take this as something a family would be bound to say, you know, in the, the wake of a, a suicide, because it leaves, you know, suicide always leaves so many unanswered questions, uh, let alone this suicide. Uh, in air quotes, suicide. But it, it is worth mentioning that Danny was also a Catholic and had lost a sister to what he believed was a suicide uh, back in the, the 70s. So that should be taken on board as well, that apparently he was ardently against suicide. Um, I just thought I'd mention that because I know families will always say that about somebody Um if they suspect foul play. So there is a, what is called the suicide note. But I think importantly, the note doesn't actually mention suicide. 
It doesn't mention death. It doesn't mention I've killed myself. Um, and in fact, I actually have in Danny's other paperwork. So he would just occasionally write in his like investigative notes what he was thinking at the time. And so you would just get scrawled across the bottom of something. Um, often a very uh, uh, like poetic, you know, um, 25 words or so. And this is one that actually struck me in particular. This is, quote, so this is his words. I live in a state of confusion and live is underlined and you're not helping. The suicide note would be more convincing to me, I guess, if it actually said uh, that that he was going to kill himself. Because it's, do you actually have the, the content of that note? Can you read it off? Because Yeah, bear with me a sec. So it was written on a legal pad that came from the hotel. And it said, to those I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. I know deep down inside that God will let me in. So I suppose, you know, the worst possible thing I could have done is the closest he comes to explicitly saying suicide. But yeah, it's it's a fairly ambiguous suicide note. Again, he doesn't actually say what the worst thing is. This is something we can discuss later as to, you know, potentially murder um, alternatives, is that there's uh, there actually is a reason to believe that he was swapping information with, or he was thinking that he was going to swap information with someone else. So he may have made a dirty deal and he didn't feel good about it. Yeah, it could be that. Um, there's also more overtly discordant notes, I suppose, in his life in his last few months. So we know, for example, that he wasn't just getting telephone threats and it wasn't just Robert Booth Nichols delivering weird threats in person. Danny's um, state of mind, I mean, I'm not to pathologize anybody, but Danny's state of mind was kind of tipped into high-grade paranoia. Um, because he kept he he ran into a number of um, operators who seemed to know quite a lot about his investigation. So there's an example. He was at a restaurant one time. Uh, there was a former special forces operative uh, who'd kind of been on the periphery of the Inslaw affair. I think worked for Hadron or Wackenhut, and he just happened to bump into Danny and said something vaguely, you know, menacing, intimidating. It's not overly important what it was specifically. Another time, uh, Danny uh, and a friend were at a party and they met a woman who was with a former CIA official, he claimed, who apparently described some aspects of, of Danny's investigation that he could only have known if he had contacts placed close to uh, Inslaw and the Hamiltons and whatnot. So yeah, very strange, very intimidating, very menacing sort of atmosphere that Danny is inhabiting in these last few weeks and months. Something that, that again, is interesting, I'm not quite certain what it means, is that the, the official account issue, written by the Justice Department in 1994 um, that kind of encapsulates really the 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 most of the details about Danny's death. This is where we we previously mentioned the the, the things about Danny's physical decline, um, you know, or potential physical decline are brought up. 
they they brush over those threats to his life in a way that is suspicious. In a way, you could say that that they lied um, because they they claim that someone we know or or that his neighbor who had received threatening phone calls gave actually detailed information about those threatening phone calls to the investigators. What then makes its way, what ends up in the final draft of the report is that, oh, she mentioned a threatening phone call, but she didn't really have any details. She didn't have any information. There's something else as well I wanted to bring up, which I think is meaningful. Danny is telling people that he's reached certain milestones and objectives in his investigation that isn't actually true. So he called a guy called Bill McCoy, who was a retired cop, one of his sources. And he told him that he'd been uh, commissioned by Time magazine. Some of his octopus research had been uh, commissioned for a piece that was supposed to be going out. When they looked into this after the fact, Danny was lying. And he did this multiple times to various like friends and colleagues. He told them that, say, Time or you know, the New York Times or whoever were interested in, in publishing his work. And when this was chased up, nobody had made him an offer. So I thought I'd just mention that as well, because uh, it's, it is kind of a small but crucial part of this, this puzzle that we're trying to put together. I can, I can understand totally why you would inflate your own circumstances, or I guess the the quality of your own circumstances to the people around you. Um, because I've been in the position of all you have to tell people is bad news. People don't want to hear bad news. You know? So if you if I mean if you actually still want to be around them, you don't you don't tell them bad news. You you polish it a bit. You tell them good news. Um, you know, and if that and if that doesn't end up happening then it's well you can you can always say later at the time it's like well yes but then it didn't pan out uh, you know you know in in eventually something else good will happen you know um but on the other hand it's again you have Danny going around telling people who are materially involved in this wider Inslaw affair that Danny is that Danny is closer to actually you know closing the case essentially, you know, to telling, to successfully telling this story, to propagating this story, than he actually is. And one of the possibilities is that somewhere in there, um, that if no one else in his life believed that he was actually going to write the book and be successful, what did people that, that again, were material invo materially involved, did they actually believe it? The, the sheer scale of these networks, uh, this, un this underworld that he was exploring, means that there's no telling who heard what and when. You know, I think we said in chapter four that the guy was planning to fly to Belgium in 1991 to start talking and asking questions about you know, NATO, stay behind, drug trafficking, the CIA. I mean, that adds about 10,000 suspects to the list, you know, if it was a murder <laughs> straight off the bat. And that's just one place that he was going, you know, he was going plenty of other places. And if I actually, just, just on, to tack onto that is like, um, and if you were to ask the Hamiltons, they have their own opinion on, again, they, they think it's a murder and they have their own opinion on 
who killed Danny Castellero. And we haven't even talked about this one yet. I keep saying this. We will definitely get to this because I think this is the most compelling of the theories that I've heard. So Danny sets off on August 6th and he takes a briefcase with him that's full of papers uh, to Martinsburg. As you said, Ben, most likely whatever was in the briefcase besides his research and so on was something he was going to exchange with his source in exchange for something that the source had for Danny. His whereabouts are kind of scattershot. You know, there's a few witnesses who they said they saw him here, there. By August the 9th, though, we do know that Bill Hamilton had started to get worried because Casalaro had maintained daily contact with uh, him. And after he went to Martinsburg, the calls first became quite uh, scattershot and then stopped entirely. So Hamilton started to get worried. And when he was trying to uh, contact the hotel where Danny was, he was leaving messages and Danny never seemed to be getting back to him. Um, and also none of the people that Hamilton and Casalaro knew, you know, uh, knew where Danny was either, which I find, I find that very interesting as well, that people were telling Hamilton they didn't know where he'd gone when it sounds like Danny had been quite open about that he was going to West Virginia. Yeah, it's, it's, again, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions in here. Um, and, and like, I guess, when the, when the authorities foul up an investigation for whatever reason, um, it's how it, it destroys the possibility to actually determine what happened. On August the 9th, Olga, this is Danny's housekeeper slash neighbor, she gets a few threatening telephone calls at, at Casalara's uh, place as she's, you know, she's presumably gone in there to neaten the place up a bit. A guy calls at nine. He makes another threat about cutting up his body and throwing it to sharks. About an hour later, I've seen it pegged as 90 minutes later sometimes, another guy calls and says uh, Danny's going to die. There's a third call, but this time Olga says nobody spoke. All she heard was music, kind of faint, tinny music playing down the line. And there was another call that was similar to that. And then a fifth one uh, came late that night. And this time there was no music. Nobody issued any threats. There was just breathing on the other end. And Olga, you know, hung up the phone. And obviously I can imagine she was pretty fucking scared at that point. And then the next day, Danny is found dead. So let's see, who do we know who he met while he was in Martinsburg? We know that he met a guy called William Turner at the Sherrington uh, Hotel. This is about half two on August 9th. Now, William Turner is a guy who worked for Hughes Aircraft and he had become a source for Danny. He was a whistleblower. Uh, he spoke to a lot of corruption and, and graft that was going on at the company. Witnesses also say that they saw Danny at you know, a restaurant, um, chatting up a, a waitress as well, that he had a cocktail in the hotel lounge uh, that night. And he was talking at that point with a guy who the waiters described as maybe Arab or Iranian. So whether or not this was Danny Sauce or an old friend or someone he just happened to uh, click with at the, the bar and they got chatting, who knows? I suppose this is the most concrete evidence we have uh, for his whereabouts that evening. Around half five, Danny 
bumps into a guy called Mike Looney who's renting the room next to his. So this is room... Um, Danny was in room 517, I think. They have a, you know, pass a few polite words with each other. Later that night, nine o'clock, uh, Looney is coming out of his hotel room and he bumps into Danny again. Danny's already told him at this point, I'm an investigative journalist and he looks pretty miffed. And they, I think they share a beer and Danny says that he's a bit, you know, upset because this dynamite sauce that he was planning to meet has blown him off. I I always feel weird saying that in Britain because blown him off means something very different over here. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, well, yeah, that would be an odd twist to the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, he's last seen purchasing coffee. At a, I think it was like a all-night convenience store that was near the hotel. This is about 10 o'clock, and that's the last time that anyone sees him alive. We actually have William Turner's affidavit um, that he wrote in March 1994. Um, now, according to the Department of Justice, William Turner is a liar, a fraud. You can't trust him. You know, um, perjurer. Every single thing he says is false. If he says the sky is blue, you better go check. 
that's not what Danny Casalero said, thought. What William Turner says is, is quite interesting because it describes a meeting that occurred on August 9th. So this would be, again, just the day before he died. And William Turner has certain documents that he had been keeping for Danny Casalero. He describes it in his affidavit as two packets of documents. He elsewhere added further details that it was some size, a sizable stack of materials. Um, interestingly, when Danny's room is searched and his, his, uh, in, his belongings are inventoried after his death, um, these documents aren't found, nor are some, uh, I guess, articles that witnesses say that he had brought with him to the hotel. This would be a, a briefcase, and a second witness also says a, a, lar a, a gym bag. Um, now, the Department of Justice states that, oh, the witnesses were just, they, they, were, they, uh, they were just mistaken. They were just wrong. But it's interesting that you have two different people who have no reason to lie, and as far as we know, didn't talk to each other, and both of them describe the same thing that then isn't found. I mean, what did he do? Did he throw it out the door and then go kill himself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, this speaks again to the the thing we were on about earlier about how at some point between the event and the um, official account of that event, lots of weird little details have been rearranged or completely expunged or changed, you know. Um, around all of this and it adds up to i think at the very least like an attempt to frustrate an honest interrogation of danny Casalero's last days and certainly his his last night um i'm just referring again to muckrock so you have uh evidence that the police have tainted expert witnesses uh with leading videos and that they've withheld evidence so this would be uh dr henry lee um he concluded that the scene was all consistent with suicide. But of course, this was based on video that was made as a, it, it was a video reenactment of, of Casalero's death. And the FBI has refused to release uh, copies of it. Um, and yeah, they just changing odd little details. The, the Boer report uh, says that a witness didn't exist who did. Um, they lie about, uh, Olga, the housekeeper, they they say that she was somehow mistaken in the threats that she read into the, the phone calls that she received. And yeah, just to speak to this Boer report a little bit more in a little bit more depth. So as a result of the weight of all these, you know, thousands of eyes and voices um, demanding transparency and, and a full and open uh, investigation into Inslaw and Danny Kessler and all the rest of it. Um, the US Justice Department responded. It commissioned two reports. The first uh, is called the Boer Report, uh, which was by Judge Boer, who retired from his post as a federal judge in 1991, received the special counsel commission from the Justice Department that same year. Um, and the second report is often, you know, overlooked or confused with Judge Boer's report. It's entitled On the Review of Special Counsel Nicholas J. Boer's Report on the Allegations of Inslaw, Inc. Now, 
it's probably fair to say it's unremarkable and expected that Judge Boer's report is almost entirely, you know, aside from just a few pages, consumed by the minutiae of the wider Inslaw case. And, you know, equally as expected, Judge Boer's report is to the Justice Department's favor. Um, Danny Casolaro is scarcely mentioned at all, although he's mentioned long enough for Judge Boer to state his support to affirm the suicide hypothesis. He also adds as well that the obviousness of his suicide makes any further inquiry, you know, a useless exercise. So give them up. They are completely pointless, you know. Now, the Justice Department's follow-up report, which would be published in late 1994, praises and confirms Judge Boer's report. But, you know, would you expect otherwise at this point? Somewhat more surprising is that the follow-up report spends almost half of its 187 pages on a detailed look at Danny Casolaro, his life, his work, and his death. This first draft of this report raised something of a, a stink even inside justice. And this is because in these early drafts, the Justice Department basically assassinates Danny Castellaro's character. They paint a very lurid picture of him as a drunk, a failure, a lunatic, a fantasist, someone, you know, driven to uh, insolvency through obsessions with conspiracy theories, someone who had an obviously bad premise and made it worse thanks to, you know, multiple sclerosis and far too much um, credence given to con men and drug peddlers and perjurers and other criminals and bad actors. In the Justice Department's telling, death by suicide was almost the only end that Danny Casolaro could have had, you know. And as this document was revised, the Justice Department's William Hogarth-style summation of Danny Castellaro's life and progress was gradually softened, and some of the more, you know, cruel uh, pronouncements and in insinuations were cut entirely. In fact, in the marginal notes of the document's uh, editor, particularly objectionable sections will have the word no, um, or, you know, huge X's run through entire paragraphs. And, yeah, in the end, you know, although these edges, these nastier aspects may have been sort of rounded away, the Justice Department's look at Danny Castellaro's life and his death is searing, you know. And while you can't say the, the authors and the editors of that report murdered the man, they certainly made it their business to, you know, murder his character, essentially. Because by 1994, the attention still wasn't going away. People were still asking questions about Danny's death. It's all very odd. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> self-evident, but yeah, it's it's odd and it's frustrating at the same time. It can be a bit overwhelming, you know, you kind of feel swamped in all of this. We talk about, again, what who was Danny going to be, what was he going to do in, in West Virginia? And so according to both William Turner, who again is supposed, according to the Justice Department, is a liar, and actually Danny's brother, this is Dr. Casalero. Um, this is the successful one that Danny also borrowed money from. Um, Danny Casalero was going to West Virginia to meet. I mean, they both describe him going to meet with someone, that, that a meeting had been established 
information exchange was going to happen. Nobody is quite sure who this source was. There are a number of theories, you know, ranging from like Ari Ben Manash to one of Riconosciuto's um, friends, something like that. Different conflicting accounts. However, Turner did say that Danny had also arranged to meet Peter Videniex on August 12th. Uh, the guy who'd offered to broker this meeting, according to Turner, was Joseph Cuella, uh, Cuella. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that, but anyway, he was this um, supposed special forces operative who'd bumped into Danny by chance and seemed to know a lot about the Inslaw case. Turner also says that Cuella uh, had been tailing Danny and had also threatened him. Then you have later after the death, Joseph saying, oh no, I, I didn't broker any meeting, um, you know, tried to set it up, but it didn't go through. And yeah, this is highly interesting to say the least because Danny was also starting to look into what uh, what's I always want to call him Senator Bird. It was Senator Bird, yeah, Bird, Robert Bird of um, yeah West Virginia. Robert, yeah. Danny had begun to look into him, and right, this is a bit of a, a weird one. But Peter, could you break it down, Ben? Because I I I always get the the chain of custody a bit mixed. Okay, up okay. Here. So this is this is a little weird. So. Robert, Senator Robert Byrd's chief of staff was Peter Peter Vidediek's wife, right? So this Joseph uh, QLR, I'm not certain how to pronounce that. I'm going to call him Major Major Joe because he was a major in the Army Reserve. Um, Major Joe was friends with Peter Vidediek's. And... Danny Casalero was using Major Joe to set up a meeting that would involve all of them. And and again, uh, according to some people, this meeting arrangement, you know, this meeting arrangement was successfully set and this is why Danny Casalero went to West Virginia. According to others, this meeting arrangement was ne- never came through and it all fell through. Uh, Major Joe was also running spot tails on Danny by this point, by August. And he had, yeah, he'd made a threat, a direct threat against him. And when an FBI investigator called Scott Erskine um, later was tasked with, you know, writing a report of the FBI's investigation in all of this, he declined to pursue this lead that Bill Hamilton gave him, that there was this US major who was tailing Danny, stalking him, and had made a threat against him, allegedly. I find that very interesting as well. And also, I guess, interesting that um, Major Joe's alibi doesn't hold up. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, I know, um, maybe that means something. Maybe it doesn't. You know, At this point, we really can't know because Major Joe's dead, died of natural causes a few years ago. Natural, natural causes are natural to the line of work he was in, which... I think it actually was natural, natural causes, but don't. Don't don't quote me on that. I, I haven't I've, I've, I haven't followed that up. Another thing we should mention as well: there are a couple of strange deaths that happen in the months leading up to Danny's. So this is from uh, the Octopus, Secret Government, and the death of Danny Casalaro. Quote: 
Four days after interviewing Michael Dangerman Reconosciuto on June 19, 1991, former Nixon campaign aide Alan Michael May died in his home in San Francisco. During the interview, Reconosciuto talked about May's involvement in the October surprise. The initial coroner's report attributed May's death to heart attack, but an autopsy showed the presence of polypharmaceuticals in his body. Goes on to say, Anson N., a reporter for the Financial Times of London pursued Jimmy Hughes, the Wackenhut security guard central to the Alvarez murder case, to South America in an attempt to get an interview. While in Guatemala during July 1991, Anson was murdered by a single bullet to the chest. His death was ruled a suicide. The Guatemalan government was asked to retrieve his floppy disks and personal papers regarding his investigation. It did so and turned them over to a U.S. intelligence agency. Sometimes maddeningly vague is this book, but nevertheless. Uh, in a press conference a few weeks later, Senator Alan Cranston requested that the these items be returned, but they never were. A year earlier, March 31st, 1990, a British journalist named Jonathan Moyle was found dead, hung in a hotel room closet in Santiago, Chile. Although Casalaro and Moyle were probing different leads, their investigations involved many of the same people, said columnist Jack Anderson. Moyle was an editor at London's Defence Helicopter World and had been investigating the weapons trade, specifically the alleged sale of non-military US helicopters to Iraq for refitting as attack choppers. Um, instrumental in the arms dealing that Moyle had investigated was Carlos Cardone, uh, the same man Ari Ben Menashe identified as the intermediary between Iraq and Earl Bryan for the promised software deal. Initial reports called Moyle's death a suicide, but evidence, including the presence of a strong sedative in his system and possible asphyxiation, suggested otherwise. Basically, people are starting to die who are connected either to the Inslaw affair or adjacent networks, you know, satellite regimes, and now Danny probably felt uh, that he was certainly walking in the valley at this point. And there's also a guy called Alan Standoff, who was um, an NSA whistleblower. He was murdered. They were f He's the guy that they found in his car, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Beaten to death. Beaten to death in his car. According to William Turner, the Hughes guy, he had documents on the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, that he was wanting to get to Danny Casalaro. This bumps up against a theory I've heard from Bill Hamilton, the one that I find quite plausible. So according to Bill Hamilton, quote, following Danny's death, a US intelligence source whose information proved to be accurate whenever I later had an opportunity to learn the truth, told me about a break-in the week before Casalaro's death at a four-story brick townhouse on Jackson Place near the White House and also claimed that Casalaro had been killed in the course of a covert intelligence operation by the Defense Intelligence Agency that was intended to identify and retrieve every copy of computer printouts from a promise-based intelligence database known as Main Core. Hmm. Which was allegedly administered by the Federal Emergency Management Agency under the Continuity of Government Program, for handoff to the US Army and the DIA in the event of a national catastrophe and the need to detain Americans whose loyalty to the United States was under suspicion. So there's a lot to untangle there, don't worry, we will be getting into main core and continuity of government in episodes to come. But the basic idea that Danny was killed by elements in some intelligence agency or another 
because of what he was investigating. Uh, I basically find that fairly plausible. I don't know how true or not that is, but that's what Bill Hamilton says happened. You have uh, elements of the story or, or elements of investigation that may or may not be the reason he ended up in West Virginia and then ended up dying in West Virginia. How things have kind of crystallized and, and how it's used, um, almost the circumstances of why he was in West Virginia be those fall away. I guess I want to get into the scene then the 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 maid found when she she came into the room to clean it um, on August tenth. So we have Danny is in the bath, wrist slashed, bathtub uh, full of water uh, full of bloody water. There is a I think there's a broken glass in the sink, isn't there? Um, it's like the the little glass that comes uh, that, that that they put in hotels in the bathroom sink. Um, there's the suicide note. She alerts the police. They turn up, and it seems from the start they were determined to make this suicide. Would you say that's fair? I guess it's the look at the the investigators show up, um, and they, you know, you don't want a um, what do you call it a an unsolved uh, death on your books. And so you show up to the to the room. The words of the investigators was, it looked exactly like what they wanted it to look like, which is the guy had crawled into the bathtub, slashed his wrist, and, you know, he committed suicide. So there's something else as well that speaks to this ongoing manipulation of witness statements and suppression of inconvenient testimony. You have a woman called Barbara Bittinger. She was the maid who discovered Danny. Now, speaking after the fact to um, John Connolly, the spy magazine writer, she told him that she told the police that when she found Danny's body, uh, quote, it looked like someone threw the towels on the floor and tried to wipe up the blood with their foot. This obviously did not um, make it you know, to uh, the, the official accounts of Danny's death. I find that not exactly smoking gun evidence, but certainly a very troubling detail that the police seem determined to simply not acknowledge. In that same spy article, um, they they actually went as far as to talk to the uh, the professional cleaner, you know, the essentially the, the crime scene cleanup company. Um, and Ernie Harrison, yeah, he he was working exactly, for and he corroborated the maid saying that there was bloody towels there. And then Connolly uh, in Spy Magazine again, he says, quote, so sure was everyone, uh, by which means the authorities, so sure was everyone that Casolaro killed himself that very night, even before his family was notified of his death, Charles Brown, the undertaker, embalmed the body. Brown would later give the most ordinary of reasons for doing so. I didn't want to come back to work on Sunday. Though embalming a body without the permission of the next of kin is illegal in West Virginia. Had Brown or the authorities spoken to Castellaro's brother, Tony, they surely would have proceeded more carefully. Tony would have undoubtedly mentioned what Danny had said to him just a few days before. I've been getting some very threatening phone calls. If anything happens to me, don't believe it was accidental. You have this, this element of the story of Danny's body was seeming, again, in contravention of state law, hastily embalmed immediately after his death. Um, Elsewhere, you know, that's that's funny that it's that it's described as um, I, I didn't want to have to come back and deal with it. 
because elsewhere I've had it described actually in detail that it was customary in Martinsburg and the surrounding area that the the funeral home um, who takes who is who takes custody of the body from from the coroner uh, just immediately embalmed. Oh, so it, it is actually standard uh, procedure. Well, that's that's the thing. Is is it standard? You know, it, it goes back to that this this thing of you know I have one account that says it's customary for it to happen. But as you say, you have this other, the guy actually saying later that, oh, I, I, uh, I did it because I just didn't want to come back to work. That's a different, I mean, the two can kind of overlap, but those are, um, those are different explanations. This really does make me think of how we were talking about how this story kind of more and more noise and chaff and static builds up in the picture, the more that it's repeated and transmitted uh, down through the years. Because there's so many uh, little details like that in all the various accounts that are in total conflict with each other and nobody seems to chase it up and definitively nail down just, you know, just what is uh, going on. Uh, well, John Connolly gave it a good go, but I'm talking about, you know, the more, the more mainstream accounts like, you know, the Vanity Fair piece, so on. Okay, do you want to talk about the autopsy report? Sure. So it's the autopsy report, if you read it, um, it's actually, it's not graphic. It's just, it is a clinical um, series of paragraphs about the condition of the guy's body and, and the, the steps that the, the coroner uh, performed. Um, one, of the, one of the paragraphs discusses the... Um, what are are then eventually written down as the the wounds that 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 killed Danny Casalero. These are, I think it's three on one arm and four on the other. These are very very deep gashes. So get, I mean I mean very deep cuts into the insides of both forearms um, above the wrist. And it's written in the autopsy report that these. Gashes were deep enough to have caused uh, damage to the tendons. Um, but also, on the other hand, it said that um, that the gashes to the tendons wouldn't have been deep enough to prevent him from grasping a knife. Um, but it's it's again looking at the at the size of the wounds. I mean, these are these are again he would have had to have grabbed the knife in one hand open, you know, slashed himself on one wrist, right? And then swapped, swap, you know, moved the knife over to his other hand and slashed his other arm. So this is why earlier we sort of flagged up this account of him trying to play tennis and barely being able to heft the racket because it's another one of those, those vexing little details that totally conflicts with the account of him having trouble picking up a tennis racket and swinging it. So, yeah, how is he strong enough to cut himself this deeply in both arms while he's bleeding out, you know, but he's not strong enough to swing a tennis racket? Cutting yourself in, in the way that, that Danny um, you know, supposedly did, in the way that's written down in the autopsy report, um, this would have hurt uh, a lot. You know, um, so, yes, people do commit suicide this way. It's happened a long time, you know, happened before he died, happened after he died. 
Um, but in, in North America, in the United States, the way that, that people, and particularly men, commit suicide is they shoot themselves. Um, that's something around 60% of, of cause of death in suicide. Um, it's about 60% of those are gunshot wounds. The other 20% is, is hanging or, or other asphyxiative means. Um, and then you have, I think it's 10% or so is uh, overdose. And then the remaining 10% is, is other stuff. So Danny Casalero picked a, an unusual way to go out, to say the least. And so I guess really it's, it's a question I have is, why didn't he shoot himself? Yeah. And then there is the eyewitness account of an unidentified man, uh, apparently a dazzlingly handsome man who was seen leaving Danny's hotel room um, before his body was discovered. That's another little detail that tends to get left out of the, the more mainstream accounts of this. Who was this eyewitness who saw this guy? Um, that was the one of the maids. Saw the guy leaving uh, this individual that she actually described to the FBI, the, F the FBI investigators. Um, and this was, this was made, um, this was eventually told to the Hamilton's lawyer. And, and again, this is something that the Justice Department essentially just dismisses as, oh, well, that didn't happen. So the obvious question is, was Danny drugged somehow? And uh, while he was unconscious, was the suicide done to him? Or was he somehow, you know, coached into doing it to himself? Now, Tony Casolaro asked this of the, the Martinsburg police, and he said that if... Even if the, the toxicology reports came back and said that there were no traces of any unusual drugs in Danny's system, any sedatives or anything like that, it was difficult to credit that with much because if apparently, uh, if the forensic examiner didn't know what they were looking for, then they wouldn't find whatever this sedative was that may or may not have been used on Danny. Bill Hamilton told Steve Zipperstein, Zipperstein who was the first assistant attorney for Los Angeles, that he had a source who said that um, Mr. Casalaro, this is from a... This is from, this is a letter from, uh, from Bill Hamilton's attorney to, um, to the assistant attorney general, talking about why, why essentially the, the case still needs to be investigated. Uh, he says in that, um, Mr. Hamilton said that Inslaw was told by one confidential source that a drug known as ethyl alcohol absolute was administered to Mr. Casalaro before he was allegedly killed. This source told Inslaw that the drug was administered by injection into the area just above Mr. Casalaro's spine in order to deaden the nerves below his head. Inslaw was also told that the inventory lot number for the drug administered to Mr. Casalaro was, it gives the, the serial number, and the composition code, it gives the composition code as well. And then it mentions that a forensic pathologist, Dr. Kit Green, who worked at the CIA for 18 years, claimed that the alleged inventory lot number indicates that the drug came from a US Army inventory. I looked into Dr. Kit Green, and this is interesting in and of itself because Dr. Kit Green is another one of these sources uh, and expert witnesses the Hamiltons have 
who seems to be connected to some pretty funky stuff. In Kit Green's instance, he's a big UFO guy, and he's also um, good friends with Yuri Geller. He believes that Yuri Geller's powers are legit, you know, the spoon-bending guy. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Hamiltons also, you know, had Ted Gunderson as a source at one point, Robert Booth Nichols, Michael Riconosciuto. It's all very vexing. I'll say that. It's very, very true to say so, that there is an awful lot more of things just like what we described. And we could conceivably fill hours discussing the competing claims and counterclaims and unusual things that may or may not support this or that aspect of Danny Casalero's death. Um, again, for a suicide, it seems like there are in a, an incredible array of just unanswered um, questions and things that we have no way of, of, of judging. Is, is this particular piece of information true or false? Or how does it play out into the overall story? I'm going to, I guess, do the lazy journalistic thing and shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know. I, 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 am, I, am, I am unable to know. I found this detail quite interesting, which is that the guy, William Turner, that we mentioned, the Howard Hughes guy, he got arrested for bank robbery um, in September of 1991. And it has been speculated that he did this deliberately uh, to try and get himself picked up by the FBI uh, before whoever killed Danny got to him. I don't know if that's likely or not. It's, it's as likely or not as everything else um, about this, this extremely weird period of time here. What I think is important to recognize is that Danny was probing into so many different nooks and crannies that the list of suspects is, is practically endless if he was murdered. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. And again, I, I, I once brought up the, again, the kind of the, the comedy scenario of Danny kills himself. And, and just after he, you know, he, he cut, puts the final slash in his arms. That's when the assassins break in to discover that he has already died. Yeah. Yeah. You know, almost like you have a, the assassins are, are stumbling over each other because he is, because Danny Casalero has managed to raise so many alarms across underworld channels. This is best exemplified, I think, in the fact that when we talked about his travel itinerary, we mentioned uh, Lexington, Kentucky, which is, of course, the the headquarters of, or was the headquarters of the company. It's also where Ari Ben Manash was living at the time. So just there, you know, if you look at just those two points of entry, they in turn kind of explode outwards into just fractal chaos of any number of people who have maybe, you know, heard that there's this journalist who's probing into this and that and may have felt themselves rattled you know and and worried enough to do something drastic it's possible that danny got killed by 
by virtue of the fact that he was about to expose an operation he didn't even know existed, you know, or a criminal network that he didn't even know existed. And he had, and again, his name for this wider criminal network, the octopus. Um, let's consider that just a bit more. Because it wasn't actually until, oh, here a few days ago that I was reading his, his book pitch in which he describes that he is going to tell the story of eight men. And it only then occurred to me that an octopus has eight arms. It's the octo in octopus. And so it was a marketing term above and beyond everything else. <laughs> the octopus was a marketing term for his book. In Yeah, it, you know, this marketing term is that was part of Danny's struggle in writing the book. Not that he hadn't, you know, that he was uh, going down blind alleys in, in the various criminal networks, not that, but that he is trying to cram these events into this term that he's hit upon. I mean, it's a good one, octopus, you know, um, and and then, it, and, you know, and then trying to artificially delineate these criminal networks into just these eight main tentacles. As I, you know, as again, as thinking about it more and more is, I don't know if, you know, Octopus is a good, it's a, it's a snappy title, but I don't even think that is the correct metaphor. I would agree with that. I tend to think of it more like a, a, a hive, you know, a hive of cunts. All of them going off and doing their own separate things and linking up and working with each other as and when. But I certainly don't think you can distill the dark complexity of, you know, the post-war political uh, history down to eight key guys, especially when the guys that Danny had in mind, it, it starts to sound like even more of a nonsense term. So... Here in his pitch for uh, what he was calling at the time, Behold a Pale Horse, what, what he would come to call the octopus, the book. In his pitch for that, he said that um, eight key guys came together at the end of World War II. Um, ostensibly, they forged their relationships with one another over gun running in Albania. That's what he said. But the names of these eight men kept changing. And it also meant then that... Um, when exactly the octopus began had to change because, you know, some of the people that he decided were part of this cabal weren't involved in the gun running operations in Albania and so on and so forth. So here, a few of the, the names that he had, Richard Helms, Howard Hunt, I, you know, I mean, that makes sense, I suppose. Kim Philby, Robert Chason, Ray Klein, Edwin Wilson. He also suspected Ted Gunderson at one time. Um, the FBI agent, satanic panic guy, uh, Alan Boyack. Uh, I think he briefly wondered if Bo Gritz might have been uh, part of the octopus. You know, what, what I guess functioning as a sort of limited hangout merchant, something like that. Um, and it's a good term. It's a, it's a nice snappy marketing term. But I think the fact that he included Kim Philby in that list of, of guys speaks to Danny's rather strange politics and his weird approach to history because he says that the octopus um, intervened in the Bay of Pigs 
to to sabotage the mission. In Danny's mind, that was a bad thing, that the Bay of Pigs was a, a catastrophe. Um, so it would make sense why you try to pin Kim Philby as being part of that, you know, because Kim Philby obviously was a, a double agent for the KGB. What do you make of this, like this, this bizarre, this, you know, frightful cast of characters? If I can, um, actually, I don't, I don't see it as bizarre. I see it as an extension of the ideology that Danny Casolaro believed in. Um, so again, Danny Casolaro is a product of mid-century neoliberalism. You know, fundamentally, the the system is, if not just, at least good. You know, there may be bad people in the system, and we have to find those bad people, and then once we get those out, we can right the ship. And and it can it can it can navigate the the treacherous waters of you know the 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 post Cold War landscape I guess. Um, but I think he is he is trying to ascribe to a handful a limited handful of individuals the bad deeds of a system. Yes. Yes. Speak to it. And and without and in doing so to I guess to obviate that system of its actual world. Again, the purpose of a system is what it does. So in a way of I of trying to have your cake and eat it too, to be able to say that, oh yes, the um the security services are are just and good and at the same time believe all of these bad things happened. Um, and not again indict the system is you move the blame to individuals. It's the CIA did bad things because Richard Helms was there. Yeah, you know? yeah. This this is what's so interesting about the notion of the eight key guys who are um, plugged in, as he put it, to various like organizations and and deep state factions around the world. What he doesn't understand is that. It is true that, you know, people get plugged into these different outfits and organizations and sometimes link up, sometimes end up in conflicts with each other and whatnot. But it isn't just eight guys. It is the practice of an entire ruling class. That is what they all do. That is how they survive. You know, that is how it functions. And then even in the reporting on Danny's death is you have Danny's same worldview uh, is shared by the people who are writing up the tale or writing up the the treatments of of how he finally died. In other words, you can't accept that he was murdered, right? And then not go from there to, well, geez, then then who murdered him and how does this play out into the you know the wider story of of the security services? It's almost he has to die a suicide because otherwise it mean it it turns from false to true some very uncomfortable aspects of the world around you i find that one of the really interesting ironies of the 
um, the debunker sort of skeptic mindset, which is they argue conspiracy theories are there to make the world simple and make the world into a story of, you know, black and white, um, light and dark. And in fact, if you look at, I mean, I suppose, you know, I flatter myself a little bit, but if you look at like this show, if you look at this story alone that we're covering at the moment, this is anything but simple and, you know, morally unambiguous. This is, if anything, it, it's it's complexity on top of on top of complexity, and you're never really sure of anyone's motivations or you know anything like that. But yet, coming along and saying Danny Casalaro faked his own murder to make the conspiracy theory real is like a conspiracy theory and a pretty fucking offensive one at that. That is is the most is the craziest conspiracy theory that that I've encountered yet. Almost in the um, in the Inslaw story is the conspiracy theory that that Danny Castellaro, yeah, f- almost faked a, faked a murder, some weird uh, imitation murder thing, um, and that is seriously floated as a way of explaining away these things that don't make sense in his suicide. I understand why a Ron Rosenbaum needs to believe that, though, you know. This is sort of at the heart of this show, this show's argument anyway. It's right from the very first episode we put out like three years ago. This is getting now, this series I think is getting to that central argument of the show, which is you don't need people in some smoky back room like directing the minutiae of all these different networks and schemes and crimes and assassinations and false flag attacks and et cetera and so forth. What you need is a network of people who all understand what their own, you know, self-interest is, you know, during their participation in these things. And so that also relies on people who aren't directly involved in these networks carrying the water for them anyway, which whether he likes it or not, that is what Aaron Rosenbaum's function is when he talks about a subject like this. He understands it's in his interest. He's not going to get published in Vanity Fair if he says Danny Castellaro was murdered, possibly by, you know, person X, Y, or Z who's connected to the CIA or whatever. Ron Rosenbaum is not going to get that commission if that is his conclusion. He understands, you know, on some level. And I'm sorry to single him out, but I just find his a, a particularly kind of cruel uh, take on this story. But he understands that his interest lies in positing a theory that comforts um, very comfortable people already. And and so that is why he develops a theory um, as bonkers and offensive and absurd as yeah, Danny faked his own murder to make his friends and family think that <laughs> he he was real. And if I can, actually, we, we can really, we can go from those motivations and mirror those back to the motivations of the Justice Department investigators, the FBI, so on and so forth. So again, you have churning around in the background, this Inslaw lawsuit, this thing that started in 1985, you know, that is now when Danny Casalero dies, it's 91, you know, uh, the there's investigations and reports that are then written over the next two or three years. Um, 
this is this spans really three different presidential administrations. So you are some Justice Department um, investigator, you know, who is tasked with really cleaning up the mess that is left over from the Inslaw lawsuit. You know, how do we wrap up this lawsuit um, and and win? Because again, the Justice Department is they want to win. You know, they're going in there to win. Um, so how do you clean this mess up? And now it's gotten even messier that you have a dead journalist. So say that you're the, the Justice Department investigator and you're writing one of these reports and you actually put down as the conclusion, well, you know, well, you know, either A, his cause of death is inconclusive, you know, which is, again, it's, it's, it should obviously be a suicide, but we are saying it's inconclusive. Or say you go the next step, say, wow, geez, you know, we have someone who made threats and doesn't have a good alibi and, uh, you know, maybe was seen at the scene of the crime, blah, blah, you, we, we may act, you know, Danny Castellaro was murdered. Say you put that in that report. What does that then do to this Inslaw case, the thing that actually matters? Because again, the, the, the Danny's at this point, by the time you're writing this report, Danny's dead. You know, you saying he committed suicide or, he, or him getting murdered. He's not going to come out of the grave because you've picked the right one. You know, that doesn't change anything. Um, but what it will do is either pour gasoline or water onto this bonfire that the Inslaw case is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this again loops back into this idea of, you know, pursuing your own self-interest, right? There will have been plenty of people who had embedded, you know, with justice, with the CIA, with whatever, plenty of people who had nothing to do with the theft of promise, nothing to do with the forced bankruptcy of Inslaw, nothing to do with the death of Danny Casolaro, who nevertheless will have been shitting themselves at the idea of his death turning out to be a murder because of what it might uncover. You know, when she turned those dogs loose, what it might expose about their own crimes, their own operations, you know. Everybody had the the necessary motivation to to bury this, you know, and, and forget about it and treat it like a suicide, the suicide of a failed writer. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Justice Department wanted this to go away. And so the report they wrote made it go away, you know. And in a way, the people, you know, the wider journalistic community, they also wanted this to go away. They may not have seen it like that, but they wanted this to go away. Because if, again, if Diane Casolaro was murdered, then, as I said earlier, that turns all sorts of uh, propositions about the world around you. That flips those all around on their head. So if Danny Casolaro was murdered, then who murdered him and why? Then, oh, my God, the state actually does have within itself, uh, uh, you know, assassins that are going out there and killing journalists for uncovering the wrong things. I wouldn't want to believe that if I was a journalist, specifically if I was a journalist who made my career writing about, you know, the, the, the 
things I learned from my friends inside the government. Not to just throw this in there, like, you know, for the sake of it, but if you look at the, the Jeffrey Epstein story, think about how many journalists knew on some level what was going on there for years before they actually said anything. They only said anything and started looking into it seriously once it was safe to do so, once the, you know, the loose ends had been snipped, so to speak, and... um he had been effectively isolated from that broader system, then you can start talking about the conspiracy that he was involved in. Um, because they are, the, in, a, in a funny way, they are their position to the, the customs and practices that produce, you know, people like Jeffrey Epstein or produce outcomes like the theft of promise. All of this system is sort of interlinked and interdependent. And, um, and again, if you take then... So the government has sat down and has presented you with a case, or I say a case, but a, a, a report that, that claims to describe all of these events. Again, if you reject that conclusion, you know, if you then accept, you know, if you accept the alternate that, the, again, the, the, the report the Justice Department puts out says, we didn't steal promise. You say you stole promise. Justice Department report says Danny committed suicide. You know, you say, no, I think he was murdered. Again, that is a worldview shaking moment for you. You know, it has to be. I mean, again, how do you go on doing what you were doing if you accept that the government lied about all these things and they actually did murder this guy? I mean, I know we said that it's kind of irrelevant, really, to this broader matrix of corruption that we're that we are describing and that we are going to be exploring further in episodes to come. However, you know, just for my own peace of mind, I suppose, where do you come down on this uh, murder or suicide? If I can again link it back to episode one, said Danny Casalero was suicided, right? Um. As a storyteller, as someone who's trying to package all of these events, um, I mean, a mountain of events, you know, one of the articles that, that I read was discussing uh, that there's apparently like 20,000 pages have, are in government archives on this, um, on Inslaw, death, death of Danny Casalero, so on and so forth. That. If you want to wrap all that up into a coherent, say entertaining, but really engaging story, then Danny Casalero being murdered, that is a more engaging proposition. I mean, this, this was the thing we were joking about uh, in the prep for this episode, which is as we were sort of read it, doing the reading, doing the research, and we started thinking, gee, like... If we turn up smoking gun proof that he really killed himself, are people going to be pissed? <laughs> are we going to have to put a disclaimer in the show saying like, don't worry guys, even though Danny killed himself, there's plenty of other murders that we're going to get into. Do you know what I mean? Um, it, it has you doubt in yourself, I suppose. I am going to retreat into that is, you know, I'm almost, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the coward's way out. Say, I don't, I, I, I don't have an answer to was he murdered or, or, or did he commit suicide? And, and I guess in my justification for sticking with that is 
as we've described in this episode and elsewhere, almost it reaches a point where it doesn't matter. You know, does does what I actually think about this individual event change anything at all? I do understand that um, that point of view. However, um, because this is my show, <laughs> I'll I'll go on the record and say I think the balance of evidence indicates that it was a murder. I don't know exactly the mechanism of how they did it. I don't know who did it or why. I think he was murdered, though. No, I was going to say, and 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 actually, and and thank you for being the the the, the strong man who said that because that is also. The, I mean, it, it's there's enough stuff out there that shouldn't be there if he just killed himself. Again, one of the elements is so you have all of these. Someone cares enough to to threaten his life. I can't answer that question and and stick with the suicide. Uh, conclusion. I would say someone cares enough to threaten his life, but other people care enough to place a medal on his coffin. So this is Ridgeway and Vaughn, quote, at Casalaro's funeral, um, the family felt engulfed by mysteries. Two men approached the coffin. One man wore a raincoat. The other was a beribboned black soldier in army dress. The soldier laid a medal on the lid, saluted, and both men quickly walked away. No one recognized either man. Danny had never served in or covered the military. The medal was buried with the coffin. And then on September 4th, 1991, Ridgeway and Vaughn again, quote, Casalaro's sister, his son, and a friend visited police in Martinsburg to recover Casalaro's car and personal items. Um, while the trio waited in the police station, two men arrived and asked to speak to police regarding the Casalaro case. The family introduced themselves and the two men said they were detectives from the Washington, D.C. National Airport Authority. The detectives said they were investigating the murder of Alan Standoff, a civilian employee at the Vint Hill Farm military reservation, which is run by the NSA. In a later interview, the detectives explained that Standoff died of a blow to the head sometime around January 3rd, 1991. And someone had called them and told them that Casalaro had been investigating Standoff's death and now Casalaro was dead too. So yeah, I mean, balance of that, just that utterly bizarre episode with the, the soldier laying the medal on the coffin, um, the papers that were missing from Danny's um, effects after he died. Yeah, there's just too much weirdness around this for me to say that he he killed himself you know yeah 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 he uh, yeah he was murdered and we and we'll never know why we'll never know why actually why or or who did it yeah the only way that you can really investigate these things or look into them or, or do any research is or at least this is how i see it is you just have to accept you will never know the detail embrace the mystery Danny Casalaro, RIP. Rest in peace. You were one hell of an investigator. Yep, I'll say. And that serves for this episode. As ever, thanks to my boy Benghazi for joining me on this odyssey. Thanks to you fine people for listening, urging on friends and loved ones and all the rest of it. 
I will be out of the country for two weeks um, as of the release of this episode. So I'll be taking a very brief break from the show just to recharge the batteries and all the rest of it. But then we'll be roaring back with the second half of the octopus and things are about to get even wilder, even darker, even more depraved, even more out there. And then America is wrapped for the time being and our next project will begin. The next phase of the show will begin. So yeah, hope you can join us after the break and I look forward to rendezvousing with you again. Mark the exits, check the sightlines, and don't get captured.